when I was a little boy, my mom and I, I don't know how old I was, but I was really young, she signed us up for a wood carving class. Now, I think a wood carving class, and by the, by the time we were done, we had this block of wood and we, we went back week after week and we turned it into like a howling dog. And it was cool. Now, I think my, my mom's agenda was probably to try to channel my, you know, boyhood fascination with danger. Uh, and, oh, he loves knives. I had this knife collection. And so I had so many knives and all these rules about my knives. I love knives. And so my mom was probably smart thinking, what's wrong with this kid? Well, we need to turn the desire into something positive. Let's do a wood carving class. So parenting 101, probably. I haven't done any wood carving since. I don't know if I was eight or seven or what I was, but I do, because I had a knife collection, still have my whittling knife. I was always bummed we didn't use the big blade, we used the small blade, and that seemed kind of wimpy to me. But in the wood carving class, we would whittle and we'd use the small blade. This is mine. So last night what I did was I walked out in the dark to the wood pile. This isn't the right kind of wood, by the way. This is the kind of wood that we use in our fire pit in our backyard. I was hoping there weren't any spiders on it. I didn't want to forget it, so I, and I didn't want to put it in my car last night. So I laid it on the windshield, because then I knew I wouldn't forget it. I digress. Not very good at whittling or wood carving. This isn't the right kind of wood, but I imagine that if for the next 45 minutes I worked at it, I could turn this into a recognizable character. I could probably make it look like some kind of weird little man, weird little being, some kind of creature. I don't know if I could make it look like a howling dog. Um, But I have enough confidence I could make it into something kind of cool looking. At least the kids would think it was cool looking. So what we could do for the next 45 minutes is we could all kind of gather around and maybe we'd play some more kind of nice music and listen to the rain and and I could whittle some kind of creature. And then what we could do is when I was all done whittling is we could bow down and worship it. We could pray to it. And we could look to that figure that you watched me make from my woodpile with my own hands. And we could seek assurance of acceptance by God through it as our mediator. Wouldn't that be something? Well, it wouldn't be good because the Bible says, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. And then Habakkuk 2 says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! And then it says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Contrast. I'm going to put this knife away lest I hurt myself and others. Contrast between the living God in the Old Testament whose unique presence dwells in the temple of God and the absolute insanity and wrongness of making something from your woodpile with your own hands. You made it according to your liking 
and then you pray to it and worship it and think somehow God is going to accept you because of what you did. It's crazy, right? What's so interesting to me, and this is why I'm using it as an illustration this morning, is the very last verse of the New Testament book we call 1 John says this, Little children, keep yourselves from what? Idols. Keep yourselves from idols. We're going to finish our study of 1 John today. It's a book about assurance. How we can have confidence that God has accepted us because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think when we started, I probably referenced that verse at the very beginning. And I'm going to reference it at the beginning of the sermon. Because it's so fascinating. Little children, so pastorally, caringly, John the Apostle says, guard yourself. Keep yourself from idols. Surely he doesn't mean in the Old Testament sense, he doesn't mean from the woodpile sense, he doesn't mean you're going to whittle it and then there it is and bow down and worship it, but he's borrowing that image in an awesome way, I think a staggering kind of um, startling kind of way. And here's the way. You don't want to miss this. He wants you to have assurance, and in doing so, he has to talk about the many antichrists, the many instead of Christ, the many who oppose Christ, the many false prophets. Contrast, because in them you won't have any assurance. Because the Jesus they tell you about, the Savior they tell you about, the Christ they tell you about, is an idol. It's made by human beings. It's not the real Savior. It's not the real Christ. Little children, guard yourself from idols, from the Antichrist, the ones who are different from the one who is fully God and fully man. The one who is different from the one who came and is the righteous the fulfiller of God's law. I mean, this is stuff from 1 John. The one who is different from the atoning, the propitiating sacrifice that brings forgiveness of sins. The one who is different from Him is an idol. And think about what kind of assurance you could get from this. We might play tricks on ourselves. We might say, well, I like to give it food at night because I know it likes the food. Well, I, and I pray and then I see things happening in my life so I, 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 I think it's actually true. I believe in my heart it's true. But who are we kidding? We made it. There is no assurance in a fake Christ that we've made up or some other false prophets made up and then invited us to trust in. I love the final words of 1 John. Guard yourself from fake saviors. Because if you pursue a fake savior, 
And there must be many of them because there are many antichrists and many false prophets, John says. You for sure will not have assurance. Because the only way you could really have assurance of acceptance with God would be from an empty tomb. Right? It's amazing. It's amazing to think about. I just want to think about that piece of wood every time I hear someone say something that's not true about Jesus. It's no wonder they don't believe in assurance. It's no wonder so many professing Christians say that you can't have assurance. It's because they've created a Jesus themselves with their own little whittling knives. And there's no assurance in those. But there's assurance in the one who came really from heaven, really became one of us, really explained what he was doing, really demonstrated his power, really went to the cross, really absorbed the just condemnation that we deserved, really was raised from the dead bodily before many eyewitnesses and ascended into heaven. (laughs) If that's true, you can have assurance. Well, that probably could be the end of the sermon. I wanted to start with the last verse. Because the verses that come before it are really just building upon that. So what we'll do this morning is we'll look at verses 13 to 21. I just read verse 21 of 1 John chapter 5. So 13 to 21, we're going to do a little bit of review. Because last time we just got through the first three of five of these points. But do notice the great summation with me, if you would, of chapter 5 verse 13 where John gives his purpose statement and says, and says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know, there's the assurance word that comes up so many times, that you have eternal life. I want you to know, you need to know, and you can know. In Him. From that verse... In the closing verses, five areas where confidence relating to Christ is re-emphasized, reiterated, repeated. Five areas. We looked at the first three last time. The first one would be confidence in prayer. We see it in verses 14 and 15. Confidence in prayer. You, can, you don't need something extra. You don't need something extraordinary. If this Jesus is your Savior, you have been accepted. You've been united to Him. You've been accepted by the Father. You can talk to God and know fully well that you've been accepted and He will hear you and He will take care of you. So it says in verse 14, and this is the confidence. There's an assurance word that we have toward Him in His presence before Him, that if we ask anything according to, to His will, He hears us. It's meant to give us assurance. 15, and, it, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. So we have confidence in prayer if Jesus is the true Savior, not an idle Savior. Number two, a second area, this is again review, confidence relating to Christ is reiterated regarding confidence in praying for others, struggling believers. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that, lead, that does not lead to death. And I don't want to rehash all of that last week from last week. It's probably in the context of 
chapter 2, verse 19, that there are fake Christians who leave and follow idols. We pray for them differently. But he's saying for those who are struggling, even struggling with sin, who are not those who have exited and committed apostasy, we pray for them. And you can have great confidence that if they're believers, that God is going to work even through your praying for them. Hard passage, we talked about that last time. Again, by way of review, number three, confidence regarding perseverance. If you persevere, you keep going. Even if you get knocked down, even if you struggle, we're going to keep going till the buzzer goes off to the very end. Verse 18 says, We know, again, confidence, assurance, because of Christ, we know that everyone who has been born of God, that's related to the work of Jesus and the gospel, born of God does not keep on sinning. It's a good translation. Some translations say do not sin, and that's led to all kinds of trouble. In chapter 1, verse 8, he's already talked about how everybody sins. Chapter 1, verse 8. Just this week, though, I watched or listened to at least three different people claim to not sin anymore. So there are people who take this verse and don't take the present tense into account, and they say, I don't sin anymore. Oh, and by the way, and if you keep telling people that Jesus atones for sin, if you keep telling people that Jesus is the righteous and His righteousness is credited to you, do you not realize that people are going to sin? Is what they tell me. And then they say, unlike me, because I don't sin anymore. It's an idol. And there's no assurance. It's true that if you're a Christian, you've been born of God, you were spiritually dead, now you're spiritually alive, so you will persevere. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. And that's combating the error of saying, you can live however you want to live. We don't believe in perseverance. Oh no, we, we do. It's the two errors, right? The one that says, I will do it. I can do it. I must do it. Look at me. And then the other error of saying, I don't do anything and there's not even perseverance. There's no power over sin. That's not right either. Jesus is the answer. (laughs) Full atonement, can it be? Answer is yes. We learned about it in chapter 2. Yes, accepted by God because He's the righteous. We learned about it in chapter 2. Fully accepted and born anew. New power, new life, united to Christ. You know, we're not enslaved to sin. We have victory in our lives. We've talked about this before, but I think that's what he's getting at here in verse 18. But he who was born of God protects him. Notice this is God-centric. The ultimate one born of God, who would be Christ through the power of his spirit, the spirit of Christ, and the evil one does not touch him. It's kind of a trick question, right? Do you believe in perseverance of the saints? How would you answer? I believe in the perseverance of the saints. I think 1 John would affirm that reality. But where does the perseverance of the saints come from? It comes from the Lord. He's the one who's actually protecting us through the power of His Spirit, and He's made us new. So I believe in the perseverance of Jesus (laughs) and the perseverance of the Spirit in the life of believers. So he's going to get the credit for it. 
If you look at verse 18, he gets the credit for that because he's the one who is the ultimate born of God one on our behalf and he protects us. Now let's go to number four. Confidence regarding whose side you're on. Confidence regarding whose side you're on. Let's, let's think of it like this. In light of many false prophets, in light of many antichrists, they're instead of Christ. So they might say, I don't believe in Jesus, antichrist, but they might be ones who say, I do believe in Jesus, he's just a different one. So they're against the real historical Christ. There are many people who teach many things about Jesus. And in that context... We think to ourselves, I hope, am I right? Is this actually true? It doesn't seem like we could both be right. We're saying contradictory, mutually exclusive things. This false prophet over here says, Jesus was only human. Or this person over here says this, and this person over here says he wasn't really human. This person over here says, oh, Jesus, he's a good guy, he's a good prophet, uh, he never was crucified. So he never died. And so he was never raised from the dead. It just looked like it as one Muslim man who's a leader in our city told me. We believe in Jesus too. He just was never crucified. We're all different kinds of people. have different views about this. And hopefully we say, what's true? What's right? Whose side am I on? How can we know? First John's about assurance. Which one of us is holding the stick of wood? Okay. John reiterates this kind of assurance and confidence in verse 19. We know that we are from God. Whoa, right? Pretty outlandish. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He's trying to assure you about whose side you're on. But at first we could just go, I don't, that, that doesn't seem right. How can you say that? We know we're from God, the ones who believe these things about Jesus. And we know that everyone who opposes that, he's designating that the world, the sinful sphere, that everyone else is in the power of the evil one. How about that? Introduce that in your English class. Or not. Or at the next barbecue. We know we're from God. And everyone who says something else about Jesus is in the power of the evil one. That's a tough thing. That's a tough thing. We're taught and conditioned to not say things like that, not to mention to believe that. And I just want you to know that it is what Christians say. It doesn't mean we have to say it like jerks. 
But it is what Christians believe. And John says, we know this. How in the world could he say this? Now, I at least would want to say to somebody who would object to this, well, if you read 1 John in the context, and you read the Gospel of John in context, you have one who came from the outside, from heaven. Christians believe in incarnation. And he came here from God, and he wasn't a silent witness, and did a bunch of things, and it's up to you to interpret the meaning. No, he came and he spoke and he was so clear, like in John chapter 6, that some of the people who followed him at first didn't want to follow him anymore because he was so clear. In John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, not only that, he made such grandiose claims they wanted to kill him because he claimed to be the eternal one. And not only that, there were eyewitnesses who saw him do these things. And they're called apostles like John. And they saw him do these things. Tried, tempted, tested the miracles. The whole thing. Executed on a cross by death experts. Not only that, bodily, three days after, saw him. Not only the apostles. But the apostles for sure. And they heard him interpret what he did. And now all of a sudden, if those things are true, and Christians say that they're true, I'm I'm banking, I'm putting my eternal destiny on it. If those things are true, and if it's true what Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We're supposed to have confidence. Yeah, but what about this over here? But what about this guy over here? But what about that over here? But what about this over here? But this prophet's brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, and this person over here? Well, I'm just going off the historical reality of Christianity and uh, my guy was raised from the dead and theirs wasn't. If this stuff is true, and I think it is, and I'm basing my eternal destiny on it, that's why we have the Great Commission and we're supposed to tell other people about this. You can have assurance before God. You can have confidence before God. How could you? Real person, real place, real time, real history, and he really spoke. Do I understand everything he said? No. Do I understand what he said perfectly? No. But was he clear enough to be understood? Yeah. We know, we know, we know, we know. That's why he keeps saying what he's saying, because he wants people like you and people like me to have confidence tonight when we go to sleep. It's it's an amazing thing.
I heard someone this uh, two weeks ago who was in Israel and he just talked about how none of it had any significance in his life. Somebody, someone I admire and I look up to in a certain sense. And he said, and it has zero meaning in my life. I think it was a story that just got out of hand. Now, it wasn't like I was ready to stop being a Christian because I heard him say it. But it was interesting to hear a story that just got out of hand. I think there's too much evidence for it to be a story that just got out of hand. And that's just the naturalistic side of things. Because of what God has done in my life, I can't believe it's just a story that got out of hand. I also heard an interesting um, uh, in, engagement this week w- with a, a Christian and an atheist. Um, it was a recent interview, and the, and the atheist said, if you obliterated Christianity from the face of the earth and left no trace of it whatsoever, if you could do that right now and erase it from everyone's minds, he said... No one would ever make this stuff up. It would be gone for good because no one makes this stuff up. And I thought, you're helping my case. No one makes this stuff up. A perfectly holy God whose law we have violated to the point of condemnation and there's absolutely nothing you can do even with the help of spiritual leaders to solve the problem because the offense has been made. And God would be just to condemn everybody. And to quote the atheist again, no one would make this up. I'm banking on the fact that no one made it up. Maybe just just to encourage you a little bit, depending on where you are, where you're coming from, just to, to think about what is said there in verse 19. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I, I would encourage you to, to make sure you read that, as I have already said, but to reiterate in context. especially like at the beginning of the book. We saw. We heard. Chapter 2, verse 22 said, Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the saving Messiah, that's what Christ means, the delivering Messiah. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Again, if it's not true, then Christianity is a really jacked up religion. God has one Son, God sends His unique Son, and everyone who trusts in His Son will have eternal life. John 3. 
And everyone who doesn't trust in His Son, because there's only one Son, therefore one way, therefore one atoning sacrifice, one who is perfectly righteous, is fairly justly judged to the point where it says in 3.18, judged already. Okay. Context of assurance. I just know I'm living in a world where it's not right for Christians to believe that, and I'm saying to you, it's the heart of the whole matter. But if it's not true, then you shouldn't have assurance. Okay, let's go to number five, and we're going to wrap up on number five. Confidence, another area of confidence relating to Christ for assurance. Number five, confidence regarding Jesus. And really, this is just a closing, reiteration, wrap-up of the whole thing. Someday, I'll preach this in a different setting as a whole sermon. But praise God, I won't do it right now. 20 and 21 summarize the whole thing in a great way. It's confidence regarding Jesus. Uh, complementing what we've been talking about. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. So again, like from chapter 1, we know that He's come apostolic eyewitness and other eyewitnesses. I like to say ear witnesses because we heard him too. He talked about that in chapter 1. So we know that he has come. Not only that, he has given us understanding. So, so we didn't come to this on our own. As a matter of fact, John the Apostle would have seen lots of people see the stuff, taste the food, eyewitness to these things and say, he's the devil. So it's a spiritual problem, not merely an intellectual problem. So we know that He's come, and He's the one who's given us eyes to see and ears to hear. He's given us understanding by the power of His Spirit. So we're getting all of that in here. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. So we're dealing with matters of truth as opposed to antichrist false prophets. We can know the one who is true. I heard the same atheist this week um, label in a derogatory kind of negative way uh, Christians, he called them truthers. And he said, and the truth won't set you free. So you've got to live in the world of abstract so I can keep thinking that Jesus didn't really do these things. We can know the one who is true. And we are in Him, united to Him. Christ and all of His benefits are ours. We are in Him, united to Him, who is true. In His Son. Jesus Christ. He is the true God. And eternal life. You could take that to mean the Son and the Father and... The Father is the true God, but you can also take that grammatically. He is the true God, referring not to the Father, but to the Son. Both are true. I love that last statement. I hope you love it too. He is the true God and eternal life. Startling. 
amazing. He is the true God. And the true God is eternal life, which is what this whole thing's been all about, eternal life. John, Jesus came to give eternal life. First John, assurance that you have eternal life. Well, how are you going to know? Because there are so many people speaking in the name of God. Well, here's how you're going to know, because we're talking about the historic one. We're talking about the real one. We're talking about the one who spoke and interpreted these things. We're talking about the one who's giving you eyes to see. You may know. And isn't it interesting that it ultimately comes from Him that we know? Not us. He has birthed us anew, we learned about earlier in the book. So it's not like, yeah, we know, I know things, man. No, it's meant to be, it's given, it's granted, it's gracious, but it is real, and it's not arrogant to know things and have confidence. It's because He's been so clear that we can know things. I want other people to know things by the power of the Spirit. I'm cross-referencing in my mind, but I'm borrowing from the Apostle Paul now where he says, faith comes by hearing. I want to tell people the truth about Jesus, like Romans chapter 10 says. Because I want my friends who aren't Christians to have assurance of salvation, because I want them to have salvation. So I want to tell them the truth. And it's going to be rough, because I'm talking about absolutes and I'm talking about truth. So I even look for ways to illustrate it. Well, there's no such thing as truth. How's that working for you when it comes to your visa bill? Made a car payment lately? I look for any type of creative way I possibly can to try to communicate. Oh, we do have absolutes and we believe in absolutes. There's this thing called gravity. You've been to the First National Building lately? I'll do whatever I possibly can to try to reason with someone. I have to know at the end of the day, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of truth. I've got to tell them the gospel. I want people to know things, specifically to know that Jesus came and Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death and was raised from the dead. And he said that if you believe in me, trust in me, depend upon me as your representative, before God, your mediator, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel of John. How can we really have assurance that we belong to him and that he's really the true one? First John's helping us. I listened to more teachers this week that said there's no such thing as assurance. It's arrogant to be sure. Can't be sure. It's the height of arrogance to be sure. And you know what I thought of? I thought of this. Or something like this. If you construct a savior, it's no wonder you can't be sure. Because couldn't live a sinless life, couldn't fulfill all righteousness as much as I would want it to be true couldn't die a substitutionary, atoning, propitiating death, couldn't rise from the dead because it was never alive to begin with, 
couldn't ascend and intercede on my behalf from heaven. There's no such thing as assurance. Unless we're talking about the historic Jesus. And then we can have assurance. Changes everything. Changes everything. I heard someone say, they asked the question, what if you found out that Christianity was not historically valid? What if you found out that Jesus actually wasn't raised from the dead? What if we found his bones? And the person I heard being questioned said, I would still be a Christian. And, and, and you know how the rationale goes, because Christians do a lot of good in this world. You know, we have Methodist Hospital. We have Emmanuel Hospital. We have all of these kinds of uh, philanthropic kind of things. It's good to be good. It's nice to be nice. I just want to remind you that if it's a sham, it's a sham. And Christians, apostles, have pushed it that way. We of all people, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, are the most pitiful people ever to walk the planet. That's 1 Corinthians 15. But in contrast, historic realities... Go home and read 1 John. No, no, no. And I mean K-N-O-W. No, no, no. Confidence, 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 confidence. Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the propitiation. Jesus Christ the resurrection. Jesus Christ the ascension. Jesus Christ the giver of life through His Spirit that actually changes your life. And so now we're involved in the thing. K-N-O-W, K-N-O-W, K-N-O-W. It's amazing, amazing, amazing. And his last words are, little children, guard yourself. Protect yourself from idols. No assurance in idols. No knowing in idols other than their fake. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the fact that Jesus Christ is none other than the one who is the true God and eternal life. May we be men and women and boys and girls who don't wear that on our shirt sleeve like some sort of arrogant, prideful people. But may we be people who own it in our hearts and own it in our minds. And may we be people who thoughtfully, carefully, compassionately and lovingly and faithfully tell other people about what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be accepted. Thank you that you do sustain us. Thank you that you do bear fruit in our lives. Thank you that you've called us to trust in you according to the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.